This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 48, Holy League, Holy Matrimony. When the French king, Charles VIII, laid claims to the Kingdom of Naples and invaded Italy in September 1494, an anti-French coalition called the League of Venice was formed, with one of its aims being to kick France out of the Italian peninsula. Hang on a second, what does this have to do with the Netherlands? I hear you ask. Well, bear with me here. The League of Venice included a bunch of Italian city-states and regional powers, including the Pope Alexander VI, as well as our friend Emperor Maximilian, and the Catholic monarchs of Spain, Isabella of Castile and Ferdinand of Aragon. To help cement this anti-French alliance between Spain and the Habsburgs, a double marriage was arranged, which would see Maximilian's children marry the children of the Spanish monarchs, Isabella and Ferdinand. If you came to this podcast with just a rudimentary knowledge of Dutch history, you would probably be aware of the fact that the progenitor of today's the Netherlands was a republic known as the United Provinces of the Netherlands, formed when the northern territories of the Low Countries successfully won their independence from the Spanish Habsburg king, Philip II, after a drawn-out revolt known as the Eighty Years' War. Sorry for any spoilers to anyone in there, we will get to all this, of course. But, you know, it has been over four centuries. In our chronological crossing through Dutch history, we now find ourselves in the mid-1490s, so roughly 70 years prior to that revolt against Spain breaking out, and we have barely spoken about Spain at all. Until now. Today is the day. As we have learned on this journey, it turns out that telling the history of a specific country is pretty much impossible to do in a vacuum, especially in an era when our modern notion of nations wasn't really a thing, and so many of the political power struggles were a dynastic dance played out across a continent of quarreling queens, petty princes, devious dukes, and conniving kings. The wider continental and soon world political situation provides the framework necessary to understand the further unfolding of the story of the Netherlands. We can't just loiter in our swamp as much as we would just love to hang around amongst all that sphagnum. Actually, speaking of loiter, ding ding ding, here is a very early, bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The word loiter comes from the middle Dutch word loteren which means to be loose or erratic or to stagger. 
So the next time you find yourself standing around with no real purpose, rejoice in your Dutchness. Loitering. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Anyway, back to it. In order to set the context at various points on our ridiculously ambitious quest to tell the entire history of the Netherlands in podcast form, we have at times seemingly morphed into the history of Belgium, the history of England, the history of France, the history of Germany, and the history of Austria. Well, that's not going to stop. Today, we are going to continue on in that time-honored tradition. So if you find yourselves at points in this episode wondering... Hang on a second, have I just tuned into the History of Spain or the History of Italy podcast? Well, just bear with us, because today we are going to see how an invasion of Italy led by a French king would improbably lead to Spain being gobbled up into the burgeoning Habsburg Empire. Ciao e benvenuto nella storia dei Paesi Bassi. How was that? Let's check Google Translate. Ciao e benvenuto nella storia dei Paesi Bassi. Nailed it. Furthermore, hola y bienvenidos a la historia de los Países Bajos. So to begin with today's episode, we are going to go back over a thousand years and do a quick overview of what exactly had been happening in the Iberian Peninsula up until the point in the chronology we now find ourselves, the 1490s. This is obviously going to be very abridged and we're not going to go into exhaustive detail about any of this because despite everything, we do want to keep as related to the history of the Netherlands as possible. So if we skip over your favorite part of Spanish history in the next few minutes, then, as my Duolingo says, lo siento. Prior to the rise of Rome, the peoples on the Iberian Peninsula rode the many waves of Mediterranean commercial, social, and technological development, much as other parts of the region. These were people that have come to be known as Celtic, Iberian, Lusitanian, or Tartessian, but given the extent of trade coming in and out, and the movement of people, there was a big integration of other peoples, and parts of the peninsula were also ruled by the Phoenicians, the Greeks, or the Carthaginians. In the 3rd century BCE, Rome fought three wars against the powerful Carthage, which, despite the legendary Hannibal initially marching from the south of the Iberian Peninsula across Gaul and over the Alps into Italy with a huge army and a bunch of war elephants and riding roughshod over the Romans, ultimately resulted in Carthage being wiped off the map. These so-called Punic Wars brought Rome into the Iberian Peninsula, which they gradually brought ever more into their sphere of power, giving it a new name. Hispania, from which we get Spain. With the collapse of the Roman Empire and the rise of the church, from around the 5th century in the Common Era, different Germanic tribes took over chunks of the peninsula, including the Visigoths, Vandals, and my personal favourite contender for best-named tribe, the Alans, who had apparently originated in modern-day Iran and wandered their way across Europe. I imagine their war cry was something like, Oi! Alan! 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 Anyway, it was not the Alans, but the Visigoths, who ended up taking over the peninsula in the 5th century, and for 300-odd years, there was the Visigothic Kingdom, or as it is also known, Kingdom of the Goths, which sounds like a fabulous name for a heavy metal festival. In the 8th century, however, Islamic Berber invaders arrived, commanded by a bloke called Tariq ibn Ziyad, operating on behalf of the Umayyad Caliph al-Wahid. 
Tariq took control of the straits between North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula in 710 CE, landing by the big rock that the Romans called Mons Culpa, but which was eventually renamed after him, the Mount of Tariq, Jabal Tariq, Gibraltar, Gibraltar. He then spent half a decade overseeing the near-complete occupation of the Iberian Peninsula. The Moors extended their domain as far as into the Frankish Kingdom until they were pushed back by Frankish armies led by Charles Martel, the grandfather of Charlemagne, at the Battle of Tours in 732. The next half a millennium would see a waxing and waning between the Islamic domain, known as Al-Andalus, and the small Christian strongholds that remained in the north, being mainly, but not exclusively, Galicia, Portugal, Leon, Navarre, the Catalonian counties, and importantly for our story, Aragon and Castile. These all went about fighting, feuding, factionalizing, and fornicating with one another for ages, taking and losing territories to each other frequently, but also ultimately pushing the Muslim forces back south in what would become known as the Reconquista, the Reconquest, of these small Christian states. It was Castile which ended up the largest and most dominant. That was the state of things in 1469, when the king of Castile, Henry IV, died. His succession had already long been a much fought over thing between one of his possibly illegitimate daughters, Joanna, and his half-sister, Isabella. In the event, it was Isabella who would be crowned after his demise, but the king of Portugal and a bunch of high clergy and nobility supported Joanna. The Portuguese monarch even went as far as marrying her, and a nearly two-year war ensued. But in the end, Isabella and her husband, Ferdinand, who was the crown prince of Aragon, came out victorious. By 1479, Ferdinand had also succeeded his father to the crown of Aragon, and the joint Castile-Aragon monarchy ensued. Isabella and Ferdinand set about consolidating their joint power, bringing huge swathes of the peninsula under unified Christian rule for the first time since the Visigothic kingdom in the 8th century. Nobody could have known it at the time, and there seems little evidence that this was their intention, but this union laid the foundations for what would become modern-day Spain. I'm sure somebody out there is screaming furiously at the simplicity of this account, but remember, this is history of the Netherlands, not Spain, so deal with it. These two monarchs were spirited, powerful, ruthless, and extremely Catholic. Their religiosity will have a big impact on our story, but we are going to get into it some other time. By 1492, they had completed the Reconquista by taking the last of Berber-ruled Iberian land, Granada, and following that, with the exceptions of Portugal and Navarre, they had the resources of the entire peninsula at their beck and call. When Christopher Columbus returned in that same year, with news of his transatlantic New World quote-unquote discoveries, they got access to the resources of the Americas as well. Isabella and Ferdinand ruled jointly for three decades, having a bunch of kids, of which five survived into adulthood, and some of whom would cling on to the sweeping tendrils of our story. Now, even though Castile was the larger, more powerful of the two kingdoms at the time of Isabella and Ferdinand's marriage, the crown of Aragon, which Ferdinand had inherited, was still a sprawling thalassocracy which occupied an important strategic location with prime access to the Mediterranean. 
We've talked about thalassocracies before, and we will do again, because the Netherlands is going to become one, but it is essentially an empire ruled by a navy. Now, we're not going to go into this in huge, huge detail, but the crown of Aragon was, like so many examples at this time, a composite monarchy. It comprised the kingdoms of Aragon and Valencia, the counties of Barcelona, being Catalonia, and the Balearic Islands, Mallorca, Menorca, Ibiza, and you thought this wasn't about the Netherlands, go there, it's nothing but Dutch people, Sardinia, Sicily, and, crucially, Naples. Let's focus on Naples, because everybody else did at this point. Ciao, Napoli. The Kingdom of Naples at this point was not just the city that we all know today, but extended across the southern part of the Italian peninsula. When we look at Italy as a leg with a boot, which we so often do, the Kingdom of Naples was the boot. From 1414, the Queen of Naples had been a woman named Joanna II. She had no children and faced circumstances, pretty awful circumstances, like being imprisoned by her husband for a while. That's amore. At one point, she was in the middle of a showdown with the Pope. She named Alfonso V the King of Aragon, an uncle of the aforementioned Ferdinand, as her heir. She had really just wanted a few swords from him to help against the Pope, but instead she had let this ambitious king's foot jam open the door of Naples. A whole lot of intrigue went down at this point, which we are going to skip, but suffice to say, things did not work out between Joanna and Alfonso V, so she decided to pull the plug on the whole him being her heir idea, and she later instead agreed to be succeeded by a guy called René, the Duke of Anjou, who was an offshoot relative of the French royal family. Now, the King of Aragon, Alfonso V, he might have been unadopted by Joanna, but he never forgot about the claims that the endeavour had given him to the crown of Naples. In 1441, Alfonso V invaded and conquered Naples, adding to his list of crowns and forcing René to slink back to France to lick his wounds. When Alfonso died in 1458, there was another four-year struggle of succession in Naples before his illegitimately born but later legitimized son, Ferrante, succeeded him as the king of Naples, separating it again from the crown of Aragon. The kingdom of Aragon itself went to Alfonso's brother, John II, the father of the aforementioned Ferdinand, but only after 10 years of civil war in which three other people claimed the crown, including René of Anjou, the one who had been booted out of Naples. There was already centuries worth of bad blood between these two families, the Anjou and the Aragonese. Naples now was controlled by an offshoot of the Aragonese royal family, but a bunch of powerful princes and nobles in Italy were unhappy about this, and did everything they could to try to oust Ferrante from the throne, supporting the House of Anjou instead. So the Anjou claim never disappeared. These claims to Naples, the Anjou claims, remained in the hands of René until he died in 1480, whereupon things, believe it or not, got even murkier. René had outlived his son John II, the Duke of Lorraine. John II, so if you want to talk about bad blood, apparently got it in his head to go to Barcelona and lay claim not only to Naples, but to Aragon itself, and the reception he received was being poisoned. So, 
that's an example of the bad blood. So Rene had outlived him. He'd also outlived John II's son, his grandson, Nicholas I, meaning that Rene's title of Duke of Anjou and his claim to Naples passed to his nephew, who then also died a year later without having had children. In his will, this nephew named the Universal Spider, Louis XI, King of France, as his successor, meaning that when Louis XI died, the claim to the crown of Naples passed into the hands of the young French king, Charles VIII. Capiche? Like we said, it's complicated. And we're going to make it a little bit more complicated, because when René's grandson, the Duke of Lorraine, had died, he had passed on the Duchy of Lorraine to his auntie, Yolanda, who had then immediately passed it on to her son, René II. What this meant is that René II also had a pretty viable claim to be the King of Naples too. We have already spoken about him a lot, René II, because firstly, he was the guy who defeated Charles the Bold at Nancy, and secondly, he was married to Philippa, the twin sister of the now-rebellious Duke of Helders, Charles of Egmont. See, there's a little bit of Dutch history in there. In 1488, Rene II actually made an attempt to go to Naples and claim the crown for himself. Wouldn't you? But he was thwarted. In the book, A Bewitched Duchy, Lorraine and Its Dukes, historian E. William Monta writes of this, quote, Subsidized by an annual pension of 20,000 livres from the French regent in 1488, René prepared to invade southern Italy in support of his claim to Sicily. However, his reckless attempt to kidnap the Ottoman prince, Jem, then being held at a remote castle in eastern France, compromised his standing at the French court. René got only as far as Lyon, when the French crown ruined his plans by cancelling his pension. It would not be restored until 1497, three years after the French king invaded Italy himself. End quote. So René, who'd been given this support by the king's sister, Anne of Beaujeu, had then gone down, stuffed up by trying to capture the Ottoman prince, and had the whole thing cancelled when his pension was taken away from him. He was not super interested in further pressing his claims after this because he relied on the money which he was receiving from the French court, and he would need to be sure that he stayed on the right side of the king. As a quick aside, and given this whole episode is one big long aside, why not? The Ottoman prince who was mentioned in that quote, Jem, was the third son of the late Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II, and he was himself involved in a dispute with his older brother Bayezid over who was the rightful successor. Jem had gone into exile in Egypt after unsuccessfully pressing his claims before becoming a uh, guest of the Knights Hospitaller and being taken to France in 1483, where he remained imprisoned in a tower for over five years before being handed over to the Pope in Rome. As we have seen with this whole story, any spurious claim to a throne could represent a real and existential danger to any ruler, so holding Jem meant that the Pope or any Christian prince could use him either as a bargaining chip to keep the peace or as a threat towards the Ottoman Sultan. As for Charles VIII, he had shown interest in his inherited claim to Naples since he had succeeded his father as King of France. Amongst the titles which had reverted to the French crown after the Anjou line had died out were the titles King of Jerusalem, which 
the monarchs of Naples had chucked onto their names in the 13th century sounds cool, but also didn't really mean much, as well as Count of Provence. And Provence is basically the part of France that borders Italy along the Mediterranean. And taking this into the royal domains meant that all of a sudden, the French king had a few really nice Mediterranean ports to play with, such as Marseille and Toulon. If one was to have ambitions, to rock around the Mediterranean, imposing one's will, sending ships off to fight the Turks, or claiming Italian kingdoms, these ports would prove to be pretty handy indeed. One of Charles VIII's advisors was a Calabrese monk called Francesco di Paola. According to historian Christine Shaw, in her book, The Italian Wars, 1494-1559, Paola's advice to the king, quote, filled his mind with ideas of freeing the Neapolitan people from the tyrannies of the Aragonese and the threats from the Turks, end quote. In 1484, Charles VIII ordered an inquiry into his claim, and by the 1490s had settled on the idea, at least publicly, that his right to the Kingdom of Naples and control over the port city of Genoa would provide a launching pad for a new crusade. If Charles was to successfully invade Italy, however, he would need local support in Italy. The opportunity for this arrived when one of Italy's most powerful men, the ruler of Florence, Lorenzo de Medici died in 1492. A lot happened in 1492. Medici had been the chief engineer of something called the Italic League, which was a concord between the five major powers in Italy, the Republics of Florence and Venice, the Papal States, the Duchy of Milan, and the much-mentioned Kingdom of Naples. Since 1454, this had with the steadying leading hand of Medici, maintained a balance of power and peace across the peninsula. With Medici dying in 1492, and then the Aragonian king of Naples, Ferrante, also dying in 1494, the 40-year period of peace had ended. The Italic League did what Italics do and began to lean over until it collapsed. <laughs> Julian wanted me to make that joke. Charles VIII's biggest local supporter in Italy was the region of the Duchy of Milan, Ludovico Sforza. The actual Duke of Milan was his nephew, Gian Galeazzo Sforza, but since he had inherited the duchy at the age of seven, Ludovico had ruled in his stead. Ludovico was known as both Il Moro, the Moor, because of his dark complexion, and also as the Arbiter of Italy, which sounds very ominous. Over the years of his regency, Ludovico Sforza consolidated all the ducal power in his hands and became a very influential factor in Milan's renaissance. In 1491, he had his nephew, the actual duke, along with his nephew's wife, Isabella of Aragon, imprisoned in the castle of Visconti in Pava, Lombardy. Isabella's grandfather was Ferrante, the king of Naples, when Ferrante died in 1494 and it kicked off all these different claims to the Neapolitan throne, her father, Ferrante's son, Alfonso II, was one of them. Isabella of Aragon, from Visconti Castle where she was imprisoned with her husband, then asked her father for help in taking Gian Galeazzo Sforza's ducal power back off his uncle Ludovico. Ludovico responded, by contacting the King of France, Charles VIII, and suggesting that now would be a good time to go and make good on his Anjou claim to Naples. See how this all ties together? 
Ludovico may not have thought about all the possible consequences of this, perhaps best expressed in the words of historian John Edwards from his book, The Spain of the Catholic Monarchs. Quote, It is doubtful whether Ludovico wished to see French domination of Italy. More probably, he merely sought support from across the frontier in his own struggles to make good his claim to investiture as Duke in succession to Gian Galeazzo and to defend it against Italian rivals and against his Catalan enemies, whose sovereign was Ferdinand. The Milanese duke would have to do business with whomever was king of Naples and had no special interest in seeing either a Valois or a Trastamartin, that's the Spanish royal family, ruler there. To other Italian powers, Ludovico later presented himself as victim of French aggression, who was forced by long-standing ties of alliance to support Charles's claim to Naples, end quote. If you've been following this all perfectly and are in full understanding of everything that's been going on, then we applaud you for everybody else to quickly summarize, because this has been super complex. By 1494, the Italian balance of power had collapsed with the deaths of Lorenzo de' Medici and the King of Naples. Alfonso II of Aragon, a direct relative of one of the two Spanish monarchs, became the new King of Naples. But French King Charles VIII, having been told since childhood that he had the rightful claim to the kingdom, as well as some fancy Mediterranean ports and an outspoken desire to wage a crusade against the Ottomans, contested this. The regent of the powerful Duchy of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, has effectively imprisoned the actual Duke of Milan, his nephew Gian Galeazzo Sforza, whose wife is the daughter of Alfonso II in Naples. To take power in Milan for good, he has now opened the door for Charles VIII to waltz in and go take Naples for himself. But as we have seen time and time again, when somebody said, I am the king of this place, and then violently went to the place to make their case, very often it would spark an equally violent rebuttal. So we're going to take a quick break now, and on the other side we will see first how Charles VIII fared in his Italian adventure, and then how, in response, he elicits an anti-Charles VIII pile-on across Europe. And do you know who loved an anti-Charles VIII pile-on? Of course you know. Maximilian. See, I told you this would somehow become Netherlands-related. Just wait till the other side of the ad break to see how. Bye. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the, welcome back. 
Bentonato. Okay, so with all of that context out of the way, let's take a look at how Charles VIII fared during his holiday in Italy. Ferrante, the King of Naples, died on January 1494, and this sparked a flurry of action from all those claiming to be the King of Naples. Ferrante's son, Alfonso II, sent a missive to the Pope, Alexander VI, promising to pay him a bunch of cash, as well as provide a lot of support to Alexander's three sons, yes, the Pope had sons, if the Pope supported Alfonso's investiture as King of Naples. French envoys to the Pope arrived and quite assertively made Charles's claim clear, but this brought a rebuke from Alexander, expressing that it was his role as Pope to, quote, appease and extinguish animosities, not to foment wars between Christian princes, end quote. This was especially the case when the Turks, according to everybody, posed such a threat. Even without the Pope on side, however, Charles still decided to go ahead with his planned invasion to take Naples. In February 1494, he began mustering his armies and a fleet in Lyon and Provence. Charles sent for the Marshal of France, Philip de Crevecoeur, to come in and lead the charge. Along the way, however, the 76-year-old Crevecoeur, who we've spoken, we've been talking about him forever, passed away in the village of Brest. A moment of silence, please, for Philip de Clevercourt, the turncoat noble whose military prowess had seen him play a pivotal role for decades in the wars between Burgundy and France on both sides. Respect. After his death, Charles took control of the invasion of Italy himself. There was still a lot of uncertainty about logistical issues, however, like the cost, the projected time span, and the level of local support they would receive. Also, how many troops were going to be necessary, how many boats would they need, and what exactly was the best plan to get an army to Naples? Remember that Naples lies south of Rome, meaning that if he was going to go by land, he was going to need to cross half of Italy to get there. As we have already touched upon, just when speaking about Naples, the Italian peninsula was rife with competition and rivalries between the different powers. A huge invasion by a foreign king would mean having to delicately deal with these powers, allowing him to get through to his objective. Any misstep could easily turn them against him. Foreshadowing. In regard to local support, Ludovico Sforza, the regent of Milan, was on Team Charles VIII, and he was in too deep to back out now. He had ensured that the French could use the port town of Genoa, with the idea that French forces would arrive and from there head south into Naples. In July 1494, the French king's cousin, the Duke of Orléans, Louis, arrived in Genoa with an army of French troops and Swiss mercenaries who were joined by the Milanese. In Florence, the popular opinion was to support France. Florence was run by international commerce, similar to Bruges in Flanders, well, until recently, and much of its business was done in France. However, like Bruges and Flanders, there was a disconnect between what the citizens wanted and what the rulers decided. Piero de' Medici, having succeeded his late father, Lorenzo, stated publicly that their alliance was with Naples and their honour demanded that they stick to it. He said the same to Charles' ambassadors when they arrived to request passage of supplies through Tuscany. The refusal by Medici to help him irritated Charles VIII so much that he banished all Medici bankers and agents from France. Only the Medici, though, 
in the words of Christine Shaw, quote, other Florentine merchants and bankers were left in peace because, Charles said, he knew that the people of Florence were sympathetic to him, end quote. The other major Republican power in Italy was Venice. Their biggest concern was keeping trade lubricated between East and West, which they did by maintaining control over various Eastern Mediterranean and Adriatic ports and holdings. The Venetian Republic was face-to-face with the Ottoman Empire, which had surged into superpower status in the 15th century, resulting in the capture of Constantinople in 1453. The Venetians had managed to maintain some trade access to this gateway in the east, despite Constantinople becoming under Ottoman control, but nonetheless were in a pretty consistent struggle with the Ottomans over the control of vital trade routes. They listened to the entreaties of both Charles VIII and Alfonso II, both of whom wanted the Venetian support in claiming the crown of Naples. Despite French offers of various ports as prizes, they were kindly advised that the Republic of Venice, also known as La Serenissima, the most serene republic, must stay serenely neutral so as to be able to deal with any issues that might arise on their eastern board. So as all this began to come to a head in August and September 1494, Florence and the Pope were with Alfonso as King of Naples. Milan, led by Ludovico Sforza, was with France, and the Republic of Venice had stayed neutral. The expected invasion still managed some surprises, as word spread around that the French had, mainly, marched over the Alps, with Charles VIII arriving in the town of Asti on September the 9th. Alfonso had thought that the best way to keep himself in power in Naples was to make sure that Charles and the French never got there in the first place. His plan was to incite a rebellion in Genoa against Milan and France. For this purpose, at the beginning of September 1494, an Aragonese fleet landed 4,000 Neapolitan troops just south of Genoa at a place called Rapallo. Unfortunately for them, the Duke of Orléans, Louis, was able to catch them in a kind of pincer with Swiss mercenaries and Milanese troops attacking them by land while French artillery shot at them from ships in the bay. It was a big defeat for the Neapolitans. I'm sure it all made them want to go eat some ice cream. But it assured that Genoa would remain in France's possession. It wasn't the biggest battle by any measure, but it threw a big spanner in the plan A of Alfonso. His troops had to withdraw, and he now had to accept that he was not going to prevent the French from arriving. They were here. We are not going to go into the absolute depths of detail about this war, which would become known as the First Italian War, or the first of the Valois-Habsburg Wars, but just a quick couple of highlights. Almost immediately after arriving in Italy in September 1494, Charles VIII fell incredibly sick and almost had to go back to France, which would have been quite the fizzer after all this build-up, but sometimes that's just how things go. Not on this occasion, though. He did recover, and a month later he was in Pavia, where he visited the real Duke of Milan, the imprisoned Gian Galeazzo Sforza, the one who Ludovico Sforza, his uncle, was ruling for. Gian Galeazzo just suddenly happened to be on his deathbed at this time. Weird timing. Just to quote a little bit of the history of Italy, an account of these wars that was written by Francesco Gucciadini, who was a contemporary and a major political writer of these times. Quote, It was published abroad 
that the death of Galeazzo had proceeded from an immoderate use of the matrimonial bed. But it was universally believed through Italy that no natural infirmity nor incontinence was the cause. One of the royal physicians affirmed that he had observed most manifest symptoms of poison. And if that was the case, no one doubted, but Ludovico was the author. End quote. In case you didn't get that, indeed, the public explanation for his death was an immoderate use of the matrimonial bed. What does that mean? Was he jumping up and down on it too much? Did he hurt his back? I Look, I don't like making jokes about people dying, but I have to laugh at this plan of Ludovico to convince Italians that you could have too much sex. That's amore. It worked out for him, though, because after Gian Galeazzo Sforza's death, Ludovico was officially made Duke of Milan. The French army went a rampaging through Tuscany, destroying castles, slaughtering all of their inhabitants, and just really winning the hearts and minds of Italians. Charles occupied Florence after a popular revolt, had ejected Piero de' Medici, and then he moved south. The King of France wrote letters to the Pope, telling him he was coming to Rome, and letting him know that if there was no resistance in this, quote, immediately upon the King's entrance, he the Pope, would find all their differences converted into the most sincere love and friendship, end quote. Crumbling under this pressure, Pope Alexander VI agreed. The King of Naples' son, Ferdinando, had been in Rome at the time, but was granted permission to leave and safely return to Naples. Apparently, at the exact same moment that Ferdinando left Rome from one gate, Charles VIII entered from another on New Year's Eve 1494. While in Rome, among other things, Charles was given back possession of that Ottoman prince gem, which would be helpful for any crusading plans he had after this. But unfortunately for Jem, he also suddenly fell ill and died only a month later. By the end of January 1495, the Aragonese resistance in Naples was on its last legs, and all of Italy was in a state of shock at the speed and brutality with which French forces with many Swiss mercenaries amongst them, had mown down the peninsula. The king of Naples, Alfonso, who had never been particularly popular among his subjects, abdicated on January the 22nd and bailed on the whole scene, heading to a monastery to live out his, admittedly not that many, remaining days. His son, Ferdinando, who had left Rome just as Charles had entered, was now left in charge of the flailing Aragonese hold on Naples, Within a month, his forces had been pushed all the way back to the coast as town after town fell to the ever-advancing wave of invaders. The French rocked up at a castle on the outskirts of Naples called Monte San Giovanni Campano, where in the words of Francesco Gucciarini, again, quote, there were 300 foreign foot and 500 of the inhabitants determined to defend themselves to the last, which made people imagine the French would be detained here for some days. But after firing the cannon for a few hours, they gave the assault in the king's presence, who has come thither from Verily with so much bravery that they overcame all difficulties and took it by storm the same day. And prompted by their own natural fury and also to set an example to others not to make any opposition, made a vast slaughter. And after perpetrating all sorts of barbarities... They exercised their cruelties against the edifices by setting them on fire. This manner of making war, 
not having been practiced in Italy for many ages, filled the whole kingdom with vast consternation. End quote. This brutality in victory sent shockwaves across Italy and would become instrumental in turning the tide of the war against the French. Charles VIII marched triumphantly into Naples with Ferdinando fleeing to Sicily, promising his subjects that he would return with reinforcement in 15 days, and should he not, they were to be released from their fealty to him. It took a bit longer than 15 days, but Ferdinando, he'll be back. So, we promised that this would all get related to the history of the Netherlands at the beginning, and now is the time to make good on that promise. Charles might have won the battle for Naples, but he had scared so many people and made so many enemies throughout his campaign that in March 1495, in Venice, which remember had been neutral in this war, a great meeting took place between power brokers from across Italy and across the continent to figure out what to do about Charles. This meeting resulted in the creation of the Holy League, also commonly known as the League of Venice, but that's not as cool as the Holy League, on March 31st, 1495. At this point, we're going to let a guy we haven't heard from for a while since he bailed on Burgundy, Philip de Comines, take over the narrative. He's in Italy, in the service of the French king still, and he tells us about when he hears about this league. Quote, The league was concluded one night, very late. The next morning, I was sent for to the Senate. As soon as I came thither, and had taken my seat, the Duke told me that, in honour to the Holy Trinity, they had entered into an alliance with the Pope, the King of the Romans, and Castile, and the Duke of Milan, upon three principal ends. One was to defend Christendom against the Turk, the second for the defence of Italy, and the third for the preservation of their territories, which they desired I would notify to the King, my master. They were, in all about a hundred or more, looked very gay, their noses tossed up into the air, and no such sadness in their countenances as upon the surrender of the castle at Naples. End quote. So there we have it. The news Comines was having to take back to his master, the French king, was that a grand alliance of Charles's enemies, under the pretense of defending Christendom against the Turks, were going to collectively... Au revoir, Charles from Naples. On one side, we've got Charles VIII on his lonesome, and on the other, we have the Pope, the Duke of Milan, Ludovico Sforza, who had now switched allegiances after getting what he wanted and no longer needed a rampaging French king on his side, Venice, which had been neutral, not anymore, the Spanish monarchs, Ferdinand and Isabella, and the King of the Romans, de facto Emperor Maximilian. You can imagine Maximilian, who was always keen on a bit of glory hunting, drooling over the prospect of joining with such illustrious company to smack down Charles VIII. Charles VIII sat around in Naples for a bit, and on May 12th, 1495, waved a fancy stick around in front of the city saying, I am the king. But with the Pope now once again against him, he didn't have the spiritual or temporal backing required for this to be legitimate. Anyone could do that. I am the king of Naples. A week later, wary of getting trapped in Italy by the newly formed Holy League, Charles left Naples and began retreating north, heading home towards France. Two months later, Ferdinando, who had promised his subjects he would return in 15 days, made a true Italian-style late entrance, 
rallied supporters around Naples and retook the city itself. About a year after that, the last French resistance in the surrounding areas of Naples surrendered. A happy ending for Ferdinando, right? Well, not really, because you need to consolidate these things by more than just swords. Ferdinando took the bold move of marrying his auntie. Yes, his father's sister, who was also 10 years his junior. Even in a time of rampant incest among the European aristocracy, there were still some lines that others would not have crossed. Philip de Camines wrote of this particular relationship and level of incest that, quote, I cannot think of this marriage without horror, end quote. But then he reflected further that, quote, though there were several of the same nature in that family within the memory of man, and that within the last 30 years, end quote. That's a particular kind of amore. Charles VIII was moving back towards France, having ticked off his aim, in his mind anyway, of becoming King of Naples, but in reality, making a dignified retreat. A couple of things stood in the way of a clean French exit, one being a combined Milanese-Venetian force that tried to block their way at a place called Fornovo, where the river Taro flows through a mountain pass. In a battle that's gone down in history as undecided, but which was probably won by the French, the French managed to get through. However, the level of Italian resistance showed the strength of the Holy League. They suffered more casualties, but they also ransacked the French baggage train, taking a huge amount of booty from Charles VIII. The other problem for the French retreat was the humiliation that Charles's cousin, the Duke of Orléans, Louis, was experiencing at the Siege of Navarra. When Ludovico Sforza, the Duke of Milan, had switched sides against the French, Louis had taken that as a personal affront and decided to dust off his own claims to the Duchy of Milan, because why not? Seems to be in fashion at the moment, and fair enough, his grandmother was a Visconti, if you are playing along. Louis, in this quest, took the castle of Navarra, nearby Milan, but this was against his king's wishes. Ludovico, meanwhile, had suffered some kind of illness that his wife, Beatrice d'Este, took personal command of the situation and had Louis besieged in Navarra. According to Christine Shaw again, after Louis meekly surrendered and left Navarra in September 1495, quote, only half of the 10,000 or so men had survived the three months of siege. Only 500 or 600 were in a condition to bear arms, end quote. So Louis, Duke of Orléans, was unable to press further his ambitions in Milan for now. These are called the Italian Wars, not the Italian War. And Louis would return in the future as King Louis Twelfth. By October, the current French king, Charles VIII, had signed some treaties that gave him funds and allowed him to save enough face to set off again over the Alps, back to France. He left a governor in charge of consolidating the non-legitimized holdings that the French still controlled in Naples, but the reality was that this endeavor had allied some of Europe's biggest powers, as well as, even if only temporarily, unified almost all the other Italian states against him. His war in Italy had achieved no net positive for France, had cost a bunch of money and caused a lot of misery. It did, however, focus European military ambitions on Italy for the next few decades, as the Valois and Habsburg dynasties made it their playground to contest their supremacy 
rather than in the low countries where they've already been doing it for over 15 years. Luckily for us, because they've moved it all to the other side of the Alps, we don't need to cover all of it. But relevant to our tale, and the reason we have gone on this huge tangent far away, upriver, over mountains, and on the other side of Europe, is because of the long-term diplomatic consequences of the Holy League. The agreement made in Venice in this seemingly unrelated conflict was a key driver in bringing together the Habsburg and Spanish domains. Without having some understanding of how that came about, we feel we would be limited in our understanding of the Netherlands' history going forward, hence why we've dedicated a whole episode to this. Christine Shaw makes the argument that the prime mover of the Holy League had been Ferdinand of Aragon, the King of Aragon, and married to the Queen of Castile. In its creation, he was furthering a bunch of his own personal ambitions. One was the checking of French power. Another was restoring his family to the crown of Naples, which he ultimately had grand designs on for himself. And in case we don't ever come back to this part of Europe, he will successfully obtain for himself in 1504. But finally, it gave real impetus to plans which had already been afoot between himself and Maximilian about binding their families together in alliance through that time-honored tradition of political expediency. Marriage. Now that's Amore. The planned marriages which came together partly because of all the stuff we have just gone through would be between the Crown Prince of Castile and Aragon, Ferdinand and Isabella's oldest son and heir, Prince Juan, and our very own Margaret of Austria, former Queen Consort of France. That's right, Margaret had been humiliated and robbed of her chance to be a queen when Charles VIII had ditched her for Anne of Brittany, but now she was going to be a queen in Spain instead. Take that, Charles! The second marriage would be between Maximilian's son and heir, the Archduke of Burgundy, our native prince, Philip the Handsome, to Isabella and Ferdinand's second daughter, Joanna. If everybody had lived happily ever after, from this point on, these marriages would have resulted in a Dutch queen married into the Spanish royal family and a Spanish Holy Roman Empress married to a Dutch emperor. But life isn't a fairy tale. And this isn't what would happen. But that, guapos y bellissimas, is all for future episodes of History of the Netherlands. Oh, I've done. I'm going to go eat a pizza, grab some tapas, sangria. sangria. Yeah, we, could, we could also just stick local. Go get some good old-fashioned Dutch smoked eel. But not amore. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. We have now settled in to the studio that we spent so much of the last 18 months building for ourselves, and we are really enjoying the space this provides us to knuckle down and get busy writing new episodes of the show. With this release, we're still in January. It will be half of what we released last year in the chronology, so we're already tracking pretty well. Building this space and making this show simply would not have been possible without the help of 
all the amazing people who support us on Patreon. If you enjoy the podcast and you want to help us being able to keep making it, head on over to patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands and sign up. You'll get the shows a bit earlier than the rest of the world, ad-free as well. And of course, you can rest easy that your money and support keeps us going. And that is Amore. So without further ado, let's pay homage to these wonderful participants in our mutually beneficial trade agreement, the Intercursus Magnus Patreonus. Luca Breccia, perfect episode for you to come up. Complete coincidence. Last episode, we butchered a Spanish name. And look, I'm, I'm big assumptions, but I'm going to assume that your roots at least stretch back to Italy. So let's do our best Italian pronunciation of your name. Luca Breccia. He's a Luca Brecci. And then to Brian Winter, seasons to his mates. Well, this winter has had it all. Last week was 13 degrees and sunny. Today, we both rode down here in the snow. You've got it all two seasons. Cheers very much. Then there's Kelsey Murphy, or as we call her, Bob. And then Spencer Danum. Well, I don't know if I've pronounced your last name correctly, but there is a village in Friesland called Danum. That's very Frisian. But Spencer isn't, as far as I'm aware, particularly or at all Frisian name. Until now, let's try butchering Frisian. Thank all, Spencer de Grutter. And then, last but not least, there is Craig S. Tile, Roof champion. Thank you, Roof. If you want to stay in touch with us between episodes, don't forget to check out our Twitter, at HistoryOfNL. And until next time, doei. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.